Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the book of Jeremiah, and we'll continue our study of the book of Jeremiah. Kind of an odd book, kind of an odd book to study, but and yet what a gospel message is found throughout it, and we hope, I hope to show it to you again this morning. I'll be reading from the 13th chapter, the first 11 verses, so you follow as I read from a book that we consider to be inerrant, infallible, inspired. It's the very mind of God as black words on a white page. Don't trust what I say, but don't miss what he says. And this is what he says. Thus says the Lord to me. Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth, according to the word of the Lord, and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever, and we're going to find out what that forever word is this morning. Guys, I I know I just read you from uh, Jeremiah 13, but I'd like to really start in Jeremiah 12, and here's why. I'll explain. You'll notice that chapter 12 opens up with a question. Um, the question that Jeremiah poses to God is this, why does the way of the wicked prosper? That, ladies and gentlemen, is an age-old, universal question that is, has been asked often, it's, off, it's, it's found often in the scriptures, you find it in Psalm 39, Psalm 47, Psalm 73, you find it several places in the, in the, in the book of Proverbs, we're still asking it, we're still asking it today, Why? Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Now, if your Bible, if you're still in chapter 12, if your Bible is like mine, right above verse 5 is the black words that say the Lord answers Jeremiah. Jeremiah has a question here. He poses it in 12.1. God begins to answer him in 12.5. And it goes all the way over through the end of chapter 13. That is, God's reply 
to Jeremiah's question. Why do the wicked prosper? So when God gets ready to answer his question, what he does, and, and, and I hope you'll see it in this text, what he does is he changes Jeremiah's focus. The, the, uh, the story that I have for you that's found in verses 1 through 11 is a part of God's reply um, to that question that, jo- that Jeremiah asked. The first half of the chapter, of chapter 13, uh, consists of two signs. One has to do with the loincloth, the other has to do with jars of wine. We're not going to look at that one. But we're going to look at this one about the loincloth. Um, two signs, at least that's the word that's used by the commentaries. They call them signs. I, I prefer the word parables. But when I use that word, people immediately think of Jesus' parables that were normally stories, and this is not a story. This is a mini-drama. Jeremiah is asked to go enact a certain series of um, moves in which truth is supposed to be dramatized, supposed to be seen. Um, and this is, this is the first of several that are going to be found in the book of Jeremiah, but he's not the first prophet to be asked <clears throat> to go dramatize truth. Isaiah was asked in chapter 20, you can take a look at it, it's, um, it's in verses 2 and 3, Jeremiah walks through the streets of Jerusalem naked. He's posing or is supposed to be dramatizing the, the, the life of the prisoner of war. But oftentimes the prophets were asked to not simply speak the truth, but to go act it out, to go um, behave in such a way that um, the people's attention would be drawn and, uh, and maybe ask a question, what, 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 what is it that you're doing? Why, why, why are you acting like this? Spurgeon um, had a, what I thought was a good explanation as to why the prophets were asked to do things like these. He said it was easier to miss what people say than what people see. He says, and I quote, it is better for, for a preacher to do odd things than for men to be lost. So there you go. I have now just explained all of my odd behavior. <clears throat> Um, and what you have here is the prophet being asked to go do something that people are going to ask, what's that fool doing now? So here's the, here's the 50,000 foot view. He was asked to go buy a loincloth. A loincloth is normally an undergarment. It is suggested by many that he probably wore it on the outside so that people can see it. So he he traipsed around um, Jerusalem with a loincloth on the outside, which is supposed to be on the inside. And then um, after a while, after people noticed this loincloth, he was told, take it and I want you to go bury it in some rocks. So he does that and comes back. After a while, God says, I want you to go back and I want you to get it, that loincloth that you buried. So he does. He he goes back up there, digs around, finds the loincloth, brings it back, and we're told in verse 7, that the loincloth was spoiled. Not spoiled rotten, like we use that term. Spoiled in terms of ruined. So um, that's the mini parable 
in which truth was to be dramatized. Running the risk of people saying, that Jeremiah boy, he is really one odd duck. But there was... There, there is a prophet here who is simply doing what he's told because there's a truth that is being conveyed in this mini-drama. Now, what truth? What is the truth that's being dramatized by Jeremiah in this whole loincloth thing? Let's look at it under three acts. Act one, act two, act three. <laughs> act one, it really starts off... Um, this enacted parable starts off quite beautifully. And I would refer you to verse 11. Um, it starts off like this. Look at verse 11 with me. <clears throat> For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, God is speaking here, and he says, So I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord. Now, guys, do you understand, do you see, God is likening the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Judah, the whole house of Jerusalem, to a loincloth. This loincloth is supposed to illustrate one feature of the relationship that God has with his people. And what is that feature that was supposed to be existent between God and his people? Closeness. That Judah might cling to me. This loincloth that's, that's worn next to my skin. Um, you see, Israel was intended... To be very close. Um, this loincloth, in, originally, was intended to communicate an, an intimate, continuous, ongoing, open fellowship with God. You know, we sing a song around here, go, close to thee, close to thee. Well, that's it. The loincloth, one of the features that are supposed to exist between God and his people, is that he's close. He wears it next to his skin. God condescends to draw his people near to him. It's, a, it's an Old Testament version of a New Testament truth called union with Christ. It was Jesus that says that I am in them and they are in me. Paul says, who shall ever separate us from the love of God? As the people of God, the intention on God's part was that he would create a people who would cling to him. Look at verse 11. Who would become... A name, a praise, and a glory. 
in that they were so closely knitted to their heavenly father that's the way that it was supposed to be that's act one but in act two we discover what exactly had become of the loincloth one of the smaller little details in this mini drama is in verse one when Jeremiah is told to go buy a loincloth he's told don't dip it in water don't don't wash it he's going to take this loincloth and it's going to end up filthy in fact the word in verse 7 is spoiled because I don't want you to wash it because you see Israel Israel is filthy and as you know Jeremiah my eyes are too holy to even look upon iniquity I can't stand filth in my presence gang when when God initiates a relationship with his people. It starts with this this radical grand washing. It's called regeneration. When he exchanges our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. The relationship starts out with this grand washing that's what Titus calls it in chapter 3. And then the relationship continues with these ongoing daily washes um, which we call repentance guys um, I've told you this a dozen times before but when, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg 95 of those theses number one on the list was that repentance was to be an ongoing way of life for God's people. The life started with this this regeneration thing that made us brand new, and it was to continue with these daily washings called repentance. Jesus put it like this. Um, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. We got completely clean in this this event called regeneration. And then the the, the relationship continues with these daily acts of repentance over sin. Because you see, if you're going to be close to this God... It's not going to be a filthy people who are. And Israel was a stranger to both the big bath regeneration and to the daily wash-ups. Israel was never to be, the loincloth was never to be dipped in water Because the truth that was being dramatized 
is that that loincloth is filthy. The very people who were intended to be close are filthy. Oh, they, there was this whole lot of external ceremony, but on the inside, Israel was filthy. And the longer Jeremiah wore the loincloth, the filthier it got. And Israel could go through all of her religious spasms, which anybody can do. But even in the midst of all of her religious goings-on, she was filthier and filthier and filthier. Which brings us to the third act, the drama concluded, the final act, as I told you earlier, is that he used to take this filthy loincloth and put it in a rock or in a cleft of a rock, leave it there, and then later on go get it, bring it back. And then when people ask, hey, Jeremiah, whatever happened to that loincloth you wear around here? He was to take it out. And now you see, it's just, it's just an old rag. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to notice the language of the text. Verse 7, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. That's repeated in verse 10. If, ladies and gentlemen, that were my assessment, I can see where people would start, would want to throw some kind of rock. But that's not my assessment. God looks at the people who were intended to be close to him. And now they had grown so filthy. They were good for nothing. People who had had so much religious privilege good for nothing. Like like in our day, people so exposed to the gospel, raised in sound youth groups and sound churches, and yet now today are good for nothing. People intended to be close Good for nothing. How did that happen? How did the loincloth that was intended to be close, to cling, so that they could be a a name, a praise, and a glory, become good for nothing? 
The text tells you, it's in verse 10. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own hearts, and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. How'd they get there? It says, well, first of all, they refuse to listen to my words. They refuse to hear my words. And then they followed their stubborn hearts. And their stubborn hearts took them where? To go after other gods. And so that which was intended to be the, the name and the praise and the people and the glory, they refused to listen. They followed their stubborn heart. They chased after other gods. And the result is, da-da! Good for nothing. Good for nothing. You know, um, all of that, refuse to hear my words, stubbornly following their own hearts, going after other gods, it seems like he summarizes it in one word in verse 9. Thus says the Lord, even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the pride of Jerusalem. It seems like all of that refusing to listen to God is, is, is the result of my pride. And you know, we're all so sensitive to that word. Um, we're sensitive to it because we're all guilty. Pride in our looks, pride in our kids, pride in our careers, pride in our families, pride in our bodies, pride. And, and I could launch into a diatribe against pride and gobble up a few minutes, but I'm not going to do that. But simply to say this, Pride is so despised in heaven that it can bring you to the place where you're good for nothing. That's what had happened in Israel. This people who were intended to cling and be close, had ideas of their own that they followed and ended up in the arms of Baal to the point that they're good for nothing. That's the truth being dramatized by this little mini-drama. And, and I would suggest that it has many places to apply. Um, to the once religious man or woman who's here this morning. I was religious until high school graduation. But um, I was raised around holy things. I had, uh, my parents took me to church, to a good sound church. And then I went off to college. I disappeared. 
I had so much exposure, so much privilege, but now you're good for nothing. To the church who has left their first love, you know, churches with those steeple things like ours, those, those places that at one point were, um, were honorable and feared God and His Word. But today, they're good for nothing. Or to the gifted who was once mightily used by God but now your career has become your first love and now in terms of heaven's value system you are good for nothing This was part of God's reply to Jeremiah, who was the only actor in either of these dramas. This was God's reply to his question that he asked in 12.1. But as he closes this chapter, he's got a different question. I told you that when God answers him, he's trying to change his focus, and God succeeded. Jeremiah's no longer wondering why the wicked prosper. Let me show you what he's wondering now. It's at the last sentence of chapter 13. How long? How long will it be before you are made clean? To paraphrase, how long are you going to remain in your filth? How long can you enjoy being good for nothing? He'd already stated, by way of a rhetorical question, in verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? You know the answer to those questions. The answer is no, they can't. Okay, if they can't, then how long will it be before you are made clean? The answer is that you will remain unclean as long as you insist on cleansing yourself. As long as you insist on staying in charge. As long as you insist on writing your own rules. You will remain unclean. And you will be good for nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, cleansing comes via surrender. Surrender to an all-purpose cleaner, which is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for His people. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But... But you know, Jeremiah didn't know that song. But he ached for an answer. 
What can make the foulest clean? What can take the good for nothing? And make them into a prized possession that God would want to be close to him. There's only one answer to that, ladies and gentlemen. And the good for nothing become the prized possession. Who embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. The good for nothing brought into an everlasting union with Christ via faith in the finished work of Christ. Augustine said it like this. He loved her foul so that he might make her fair. He loved her foul, filthy, so that he might make her fair and bring her close to him. But if you insist in your pride to continue to clean yourself with your self-salvation strategies, you will end up good for nothing. Our Father, would you, um, would you show men and women the beauty of what you have performed in Christ Jesus, that the foulest can become clean on the basis of what Christ has spilled in their place, an eternal cleansing agent, his own blood. It is Christ and him crucified that take those who are good for nothing and turn them into a prized possession that are your people, your treasure, your boast, your glory, and live forever close to you. Do that, O God. Do it for many.